uh, turn to the book of Mark. As you know, last week we entered into the New Testament proper, so to speak. We actually started a book. The week before that, we kind of laid out how the New Testament all kind of flows. And uh, today we're going to focus on uh, the next book, which is the book of Mark. And uh, where Matthew really laid out for us the first coming of Christ and, and really showed us Christ as uh, the Jewish Messiah, the King to Israel, Mark really begins to show us the aspect of Christ as a servant. Now I know that when we talk about different aspects of the ministry, and you hear a lot of terminology sometimes, and sometimes you don't always understand the terminology, or maybe it gets a little confusing. I know I've used the terminology about the aspect of ministry. And then you turn around and you talk about the aspect of service in the ministry. And I'm sure a lot of God's people think they're the same. I'm sure a lot of people and a lot of preachers use them interchangeably uh, to mean the same. But the Bible's its own book of definitions. Now, when the Bible defines ministry, it defines the ministry as dealing with people. Ministry in the Bible will always be teaching somebody the Word of God on some particular level. This is why, you know, we're working through the program, and just in a couple of weeks, there's a number of you that's going to start coming through the very basic classes of, of how to teach somebody the Word of God, and that's going to be an ongoing thing, not something we're just going to do one time. Now that we've come to the point after about a year and a half, we are ready to enter into that realm where we've got a good foundation built in many of your lives, and now we're going to work from there. As God brings men and women in and they become part of our ministry, uh, then we'll you know, incorporate them in where you know, we need to for all of the things that uh, you know, we're going to try to accomplish. But uh, you're going to find that ministry is defined in the Bible as teaching somebody the Word of God, laying out the Scriptures for them uh, in whatever capacity that, uh, or whatever level they're on. But servant in the Bible, or service in the Bible, has to do with your attitude of heart. It has nothing to do with what you do, but has everything to do with how you do it. And Mark, to me, has always been one of my favorite books in the Bible. Because the Gospel of Mark really shows me the aspect of Christ as a servant. And that's something that many times that uh, we lose sight of. In fact, I think the book of Mark is probably one of the most incredible books of the Bible. And you wouldn't think of this, but, you know, normally when we look at the body of Christ and the sad state of affairs that Christianity is in, you know, we go to the book of Revelation or we go to some of the other books that prophetically show us the end time and the way, you know, we know we are, as it was in the days of Noah, you know, so shall be in the coming of Son of Man. But really, from a practical standpoint of what's wrong with Christianity and why Christianity has lost its power, uh, I don't know of a better book in the Bible that uh, shows that and lays that out other than the book of Mark. And yet, personally for me, as a minister... Someone who doesn't just do the ministry, but someone who understands both aspects. The ministry, what you do, the aspect of you being a servant, how you do it. The book of Mark is an incredible book. It focuses on what Christ does more than what He says. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and really I think it's 5 through 11, 
you find a great passage there that really lays out the book of Mark, even though it's a long way from the book of Mark. Paul wrote Philippians. John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. And even though there's a, a, a great distance between the two in time and, and two in authors, yet the Holy Spirit of God is, brings it together that if there's ever a passage that really lays out what Mark is, it's this passage. And it says in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God also uh, hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for what you have for us. We pray, Lord, that you'll continue to uh, lay out the Word of God as we go through it. Help us to learn the great lessons of this great book. If there was ever a time when God's people uh, ever needed the message of today, boy, it's now in the time that we live in. We thank you, Father, for all that you do and what you're going to do. And we'll just praise you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. I want this morning, I think, to make a statement before I preach this message. Because I want this statement to be permeated in your minds, and I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to understand this statement in light of what I'm going to preach this morning. I've been in the Bible now for 34, 35 years, and much of that time I've been dealing with people and dealing with looking at the world, and you know, uh, most of you have been around me for a while. We've had some great studies uh, that encompass a worldwide concept, you know, like the Middle East, like we did on New Year's Eve, and we've done a hundred of those things, all the way down to the showing you who was behind the assassination of JFK. Who would ever think that's in the Bible? But it's in John, that's who they shot, chapter 6. Uh, no, I'm just kidding you. Anyway, it's a, it's a thing where the Bible says, lays out everything for you. You know that. And through the years of observing and watching people, and really watching the church, Obviously, knowing what the Bible says in the book of Revelation and how that we are in the Laodicean church period, and if you don't know that, you know, you, you need to know that, and all the characteristics of that period, we are in the last period of the history of the church before Christ comes back, and it is the worst period in church history. And I want to make this statement. I firmly believe in my mind, in my heart, based on what I see, based on the way I see God's people acting and reacting, or not acting. I firmly believe in my heart and my mind as we stand right here that the only thing that will keep the body of Christ from lining up with the Antichrist is the rapture of the church. Now, I made that statement a couple of weeks ago just in passing. But I want to preface the book of Mark by that statement today because I believe the body of Christ is a mess. I believe that most of God's people are a mess. And I believe that we are so confused on truth. We are so absolutely messed up in our minds on reality. 
I deal with people all week long. I talk to people all week long. I have never in all my years of dealing with people seen God's people so totally out of whack when it comes to the reality of the situation versus the la-la land that they live in. God's people today are living their lives like they've got the rest of their lives to live. They're living their lives like the judgment seat of Christ is a long way off and you've got plenty of time. And it is a pertinent thing that I am loosening my tie. And when I come to the book of Mark, the book of Mark is a personal book, shows me why I believe that statement that I just made. And you, if you're honest this morning, will come to that conclusion too, based on simply what the Scriptures say, based on where God's people are at. Now, we use verse 5 in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's one of our great verses that we talk about the Bible being the mind of Christ. Paul makes another reference to this where he says, We have the mind of Christ. Here he says, Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, we take that and we use that as the Bible is the mind of God, therefore you need to do everything in your life by the principles of the Word of God. And that is true. There's no question about that. And that doesn't do any harm to the text. But in the context here, the mind that he's talking about for you and I to have is the mind of a servant. That's the real issue in the pointed part of Philippians chapter 2. The mind that we should be in is the mindset of a servant. You know, Christ could have done the first coming of Christ any way that He wanted to. Christ chose the way to do it based on what He wanted to accomplish. And I know that there's all kinds of role models in the Bible. David's a great role model. Moses is a great role model. My, uh, you can go through and the list is endless. But every one of them is a man that has an old sin nature. And every one of them fails many times, multiple times. And even though they're great role models, God wanted to give us one role model that was perfect. That role model is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was tempted on all points like we are, yet the Bible says without sin. And because of that great concept, we have before us a role model here that is an incredible role model for you and for me based on Philippians chapter 2 of what our attitude of heart should be toward ministry from the aspect of a servant. The Bible says that in verse 8, being found in fashion as a man, Christ set the pattern. What Christ did was very unique. Most of God's people have no clue of this. But what Christ did is that God looked down through the annals of time, way back. you find this in Proverbs chapter 8. God knew what He was going to do, and God knew that He was going to have, when He made man, He was going to have to have some kind of relationship with man. Now, God in His biblical form is light. And there's no way that man, uh, I mean, uh, Put into your mind for just a moment, if you walk out on the hottest day in July with a cloudless sky and the sun right there about uh, blowing about, uh, you know, just 110 degree temperature, heat index, you know, off the wall, and the sun brilling down, 
Just try imagining standing up and looking at that great ball of fire, uh, which is 93 million miles away, by the way, and, uh, and trying to carry on a conversation with that, or even just looking at it. Obviously, there's no way, logically, that you can do that. Well, that son is a type of God the Father, and God the Father is much bigger, much brighter. In fact, the Bible says when he comes back in the Revelation, and his light and his glory lights everything in the second heaven, we don't even need the sun and the moon anymore. And God knew that if he came down with a big light, shined it in our face and said, Hey, Bob, how you doing? One, I'd be heading off in the bushes someplace. And two, I could not stand in the presence of that light in a sinful state. So you know what God did? God fashioned himself as a man. And in fashioning himself as a man, he did a number of things. One of the things he did, he set a role model for me. Because when Christ stepped out of the Trinity and became a man, even though he's still God, there's things that the earthly man Jesus forgot that he knew as God. Now that's tough to try. Can you imagine Christ, who is God, stepping out of the Trinity and then choosing to forget some things that God knows, but because he's coming as a man, he chose to have to forget them so he could be like you and me. Now that's a hard concept to get, but God can do anything. And that's exactly what he did, because there's places in the Bible that talk about the second coming of Christ that says only the Father knows, the angels don't know, and in one place it says the Son doesn't know, Christ. Why? Because in his earthly form there's some things that he chose not to know. So he could fulfill that role model. Because I don't know when he's coming. You don't know for sure when he's coming, though I believe he's going to be before I finish the sermon this morning. He separated himself from God. And then what he did, he took on the role of a servant. Now this is God playing out the role model of a son, and he becomes obedient to himself in everything in ministry, in life, in everything that he does, so you and I would have an absolute, exact perfect, infallible role model, no questions about it, of how we should be in our relationship with God. It's incredible. Absolutely credible. Giving us an example of our being a servant by Him becoming the perfect role model of a servant unto His own Father, even though He's God. Wow! And what Mark does in his account of the first coming of Christ he shows you the major theme of Christ being a servant, and that is his work, and shows you behind the scenes the attitude that he has. He shows us the mind of a servant, which is laid out for us, as we gave you in Philippians chapter 2, where he comes, makes him, even though he was God, even though he was deity, even though he was everything, the Bible says that he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant in the likeness of man, and he was fashioned as a man, and he was obedient to his Father unto the death of the cross. Now the breakdown of the book of Mark is on this theme. Now here it comes, I told you last Thursday night, when I gave you all that good stuff of how to begin to make your Bible a reference Bible, I told you that from this point on, as I've already done, I'm going to begin to mark for you 
places where you have to get these breakdowns in your Bible about each book of the Bible. All right, simple. Chapter 1 through chapter 10, here's what you have. You have the servant presented. Christ, as the servant of God, in chapter 1 through chapter 10, is presented. And in that first 10 chapters, you'll find the work of his life. You'll find him obedient in ministry. And you'll find him obedient in being a servant. You find all the aspects. You find he has a work in life. So do you and I. That work you have to be obedient to is the ministry God's called you into. That's what you do. But also you have to be obedient in the attitude of heart that you have as you perform that ministry in this life. And that is the heart of a servant. In chapter 11 through chapter 16, you find where Christ the servant is promoted. And in those chapters, you'll find that he is, you'll find where in the first 10, you found his work in life. That in chapter 11 through chapter 16, which, let me just say this, by the way. Those chapters are the greatest chapters in the Bible that show you something that we need to believe as Bible believers. And we're going to get to that when we get to there. But chapter 11 through chapter 16 talks about Jesus Christ, the servant promoted. So where in chapter 1 through 10, you find his work in life. In chapter 11 through 16, you find his work in death. In chapter 1 through chapter 10, well, you found him obedient in ministry. Now you find him in 11 through 16, obedient in death. And where you found him obedient in service in the first 10 chapters, now in 11 through 16, you find him obedient in sacrifice. And you'll find that all of the book covers the same material as Matthew does, except there's a different emphasis on things, as I want you to see as we start to come through here, and I'll explain those as we go. All right, in chapter 1, we have no genealogy in chapter 1. I told you this last week in the, book of, in the book of Matthew, you have a genealogy of his kingly line. In the book of Luke, you have a genealogy of his earthly line. In the Gospel of John, you have a genealogy from his deity line. But in Mark, there is no genealogy because he's portrayed as a servant, and a servant has no genealogy. He's bought with a price. He doesn't have any rights. Nobody cares about where he came from because he's in service and he is a servant. You'll find uh, the story of John the Baptist, much like you will in Matthew. It said it's scaled down. You'll find in verse 15 of chapter 1 the temptations of Christ, like we saw in Matthew, but they're very scaled down because that's not where he's putting the emphasis. The emphasis in Mark is going to be with his attitude of heart toward dealing with people. Because it's going to define for us the difference between being a minister and being a servant. I know a lot of preachers who are ministers, but I don't know many who are servants. They all live like kings, and you are the serfs and the smurfs that live in their little kingdoms that do their bidding. In chapter 2 and chapter 3... We see him putting the emphasis on his servanthood to man. And he begins to deal with the needs of the people of the nation of Israel. And this is the great chapter in chapter 1 verse, uh, in chapter, uh, where it talks about in chapter 1 verse 41 where he's moved with compassion. Because in Mark you're going to see the inner Christ. You're going to see his motivation for helping people. And in that we're going to get a great, great, great example and role model of, of how to be a servant. And then also... How not to be a servant. In chapter 4, we find he breaks into the parables. And this is interesting. I gave you last week in Matthew where there's 13 parables. Um, Mark spends so much little time on the Jewish side of things that 
He only talks about the parables in one chapter, and then he only gives you three out of the 13. There's 10 that he doesn't even mention in Mark. You know why? That's not his emphasis. His emphasis is people. He's showing us in Mark that the key to ministry is not just teaching people the Word of God, but the attitude of heart you have in giving them the Word of God. Chapter 5, we find him dealing with people again. Now we find that the, uh, the great stories here. Uh, we find great detail. The great detail in, uh, uh, in, uh, about the maniac of Gadaria. And of course, we saw this in Matthew chapter 8. But in Mark, it's a different. Mark shows you there's a, that there's, a, there's two sicknesses that are legitimate. Now, all this stuff about somebody having a nervous breakdown, all this stuff about all the stuff that the psychologists put out is a bunch of bunk when it comes to the Word of God. God teaches that there's two kinds of circumstances you find yourself in. People who have, are mentally retarded and people who are demon-possessed. And you're going to find that uh, the Bible doesn't recognize anything else. So when you have all these people come by around saying, well, you know what, uh, they're a victim of this and that, and society made them this way, Bible doesn't recognize that. Bible uh, deals with the fact that we are sinners, and because of our sin and not doing what's right, we are this morning, good or bad. You are this morning, good or bad, what you've done with the Word of God in your life. I don't know what else to tell you. And there are, there are lunatics, Luna, the moon. That's where the word comes from, Luna, the moon, because your body is made of 95% of water. And you people are nurses. Don't they have more babies on full moon nights than they do? You know why? Because the moon affects the tides. Your body is made up of 95% of water. So if you go into labor on the full moon, you're a lunatic. No, 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 What I'm saying is, that's where the furries come from. We are affected by the moon. That's why in all the Wolfman stories, it's in all the scary stories, and all the Friday the 13th stories, there's always a full moon hanging over there. You ever notice that? Because we are affected by the moon. Moon's a type of the church. We don't have time to get into all of this, but we'll never get done. But it is a trail that goes all the way down through this thing, and we come on the other side, you're sure to be a lunatic. But anyway. So when he goes through the maniac of Gradaria there in this chapter, he gives great detail on how to deal with people that have those kind of problems. Then we find in verse 22 the great story of raising of Jairus' daughter. We find in verse 25 the woman with the issue of blood. And then, of course, we find a great story in verse 35 uh, the little ruler who had a dead daughter or, or, or had a dead servant. And uh, whatever the case, in the Bible, Jesus makes the great statement, she's not dead, she sleepeth, and gives you the greatest key of Christians dying in Christ. But, you know, uh, like uh, the people that was around him, most God people laugh at it too and then miss the great principle. But everything in those chapters point to his compassion, his dealing with people. Then we see in chapter 6, we see the first great lesson on the danger that we find in the ministry of losing our servant's attitude. You know, I've noticed, I, I, I see it all the time, I've noticed it for years, and I, and I know the answers to it. it. It bothers me, but I know the answers to it. I, how many times I've seen God's people who were really good people, who really had a potential, who really had come to a point where they really were beneficial in the ministry and really had the wherewithal to do something, and then for some reason, they quit growing. They just stopped, dead in their tracks. And it's like, I worked hard to get here, but I don't want to work any harder. I've seen parents do the same thing when they've had multiple kids, 
and they, they worked hard to raise those three kids or two kids or whatever, and then a fourth one comes along, a third one comes along, and suddenly they're worn out and tired, and they don't do with the last one what they, should, what they did with the first three, and they lose that one. Uh, it, it's a thing where we get to the point where we begin to see it here, where we begin to coast. Now let me tell you the story here in chapter 6, because it's a great story. We see the first lessons here, as I said, in the danger of ministry and losing your servant's attitude and losing the power of God and trading it for a program. Because in verse 7 of chapter 6, he sends out the 12. And when he sends out the 12, like he did in Matthew, but with different aspect, we're seeing the service and an attitude, the Bible records here that right after he sends out the 12, we have the great feeding here, of the great multitude that are hungry. And we find that in that story in verse 35 and 52, after they go out and preach and come back. And once they come back, there's a difference and there's a change in the apostles. Because now they have been ruined by success. Now they have been ruined by the power of God that they had in their life. Now i got to say to you, it would be a, it would be a tough thing. Here you are, a common ordinary fisherman or a tax collector or whatever, one of the twelve, and suddenly God sends you out and gives you power. I mean, you've seen him raise the dead. You've seen him unstop deaf eyes. You've seen him unstop deaf ears. You've seen him uh, cast out demons and devils. And suddenly you have the power. And you're going out, and when you're going out there, you're going up to the, somebody who's wailing and weeping over the fact their son died, and you're saying, hey, I'm here in the name of Jesus Christ. Watch this. And that guy stands up. And you give the glory to God and off you go. And you start to do those miracles that Christ did. Well, let me tell you something. I'll tell you what happened with the apostles. Because I've seen it happen with God's people. Tell you exactly what happened. You got ruined in the success of the power of God in your life because you lost the attitude of a servant. And you actually think, thought, they did, that they were really part of the plan of the power of God instead of the instruments. And I'll show you how this thing went. And I'm going to tell you something. If there's any chapter in all of the Bible that lays out where the body of Christ is at today, it's Mark chapter 6. Because they go out and they do those miracles and they come back puffed up. And now the Bible says in verse 52 that their hearts have been hardened. And the Bible says in verse 52 that the first thing has happened in their life what happens in your life and my life. You know what it is? The Bible says when they come back and they saw this great host of people that now needed to be fed, they didn't want to mess with them anymore. You know why? Because there was no personal element. Oh, they like going out there and everybody running up and said, Oh, aren't you the guy that did the miracle over here? And you'd say, Yes, I am. Are, 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 you, are you the Lord? Are you the Lord? Well, no, I'm not the Lord, but the resemblance is there, isn't it? Are you one of the twelve? Yes, I'm one of the twelve, but I'm really closer to the Lord than the rest of the twelve. And you're fortunate today that I happen to be here instead of one of the other eleven. Ever been there? I have. I've seen it. You betcha. And I'm telling you, these people, this great multitude, had nothing to eat. They're a picture of the starving masses of God's people and because there was no personal glory in it, what do they say? 
Send them away. Let them fend for themselves. You see, that's exactly what happens when you begin to lose the attitude of being a servant. You think you are more important than you really are. And you think now because you know some Bible, you've got some things down that, oh, you're the answer to everything. And you lose that attitude of a servant. And the first thing Jesus says down through here that they had, they had not considered the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. The first thing that happened to them is the first thing that happens to every one of us when you get into this mode. You quit looking at the miracles that God has done in your life and you start looking at your own personal involvement in the circumstances. You take God's power out of it and put yourself into it. And you come to the place where now you just think that God cannot get along without you. Now, when this happens, the Lord, the Bible says, God deliberately sends them into a ship in the midst of a sea. And a great storm, a great storm ensues. And what a picture of that is of where the body of Christ is at today. Because the body of Christ is operating just like, hey, if, if God would die tomorrow, Bible Christianity in America would go on. You know why? Doesn't need God anymore. You got your own Bible. You got your own program. You got your own motives. You got your own goal. You don't have the power of God and haven't had it for 75 years. And you don't need it. That's what, that's what the Laodicean church says. He says over there, he says, you're rich, you're powerful, you have goods, you have buildings, and have need of nothing, including the power of God. Why? You keep pumping it up. The body of Jesus Christ today, the body of Jesus Christ today is on life support system. It's being force-fed to keep it alive. You say, how do you know that, Bob? I know that from this story. Because that's exactly what happens to God's people. And here they are, verse 45 through 52, in this little boat, tossed about on the sea of life. And it's a picture of the church today. The wind's blowing, the wind's howling. Oh, hey, let me tell you something. God's people, I've never known a day in my life where God's people know absolutely nothing about the work they claim to believe. I don't understand it. Now, you know I give you five years when you get saved. I don't even, I don't even think about you for five years about, because it takes that long maybe sometimes to figure it out. But you give me a child of God has been saved 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and they still ain't figured out the basic things of the Bible that some of the kids over there in the nursery today understand. And every wind of doctrine that blows, like that little boat on that ocean, Oh, this blows in. Oh, I'm going to believe this. And then this blows in. Oh, now I'm going to believe this. And then somebody else goes. And you say, oh, look at this truth. And you're blown back and forth. Why? Because you don't understand what that book says yourself. And you're too proud to learn. So the body of Christ is tossed back and forth. And you know what else? But Christ finally comes Walking on the water, and you better mark it because he comes on the water to them in the fourth watch of the night, which matches up to the rapture of the church. When he comes to them, walking on the water, 
his own disciples who he just sent out, who had everything with, with him, they didn't even recognize who he was. They thought it was a what? Spirit. You know why? Because Christianity has become, ooh, feely. I feel God wants me to do this. Oh, I feel, Brother Bob, that this is the way it is. Well, Pastor, I believe this. Bob, I feel this. I feel this. I don't care what you feel. What does the book say? The body of Christ today is on life support. They can't even recognize Christ anymore. I made my statement. I stand by it. The only thing that's going to keep the body of Christ from looking up with the Antichrist is the rapture of the church because we cannot even discern who Christ is anymore. We can't. We can't. Now I'm going to tell you why this happened. First one, they lost sight of the miracles of God. And now the hardness of their heart. Now here they are in a little boat. And that's what he does. He puts them down in that ship. A picture of the storms of our life. A picture of the spiritual condition of the body of Christ. Being blown back and forth, to and fro. The wind of the world is howling and every doctrine of the world is coming down on top of them. And when Christ shows up, they didn't even recognize Him. In fact, you better watch the passage carefully. They didn't recognize Him until they got to shore. And that's a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. You can say what you want, you can believe what you want, and you can do whatever you want to do. But you know what? I'm telling you something. I told a guy this week, I was talking to him on the phone. And this guy exasperates me, and I love him. And finally I just said, uh, he said, well, Pastor, Pastor, what kind of advice do you have for me? And I said, lose 20 pounds and then go down to the tanning salon and get about 20 or 30 sessions down there. I can kidding you. I said, lose 20, 25 pounds, go down to the tanning salon, and get a good tan. Well, Brother Bob, what kind of advice is that? How is that going to help me? Because at the judgment seat of Christ, when you stand there naked, you won't look as goofy as you're going to do right now. I don't know what else to say. My God, people, the judgment seat of Christ is coming. We're down here in this little boat being blown left and right. Everything that comes around. Well, now I believe this. Now I believe that. We lost sight of the miracles of God. We're in this little boat being tossed one end to the other. And when, when Christ is there, we don't even see Him. We don't even look at Him because we're too busy reading the last book we read on how to solve your problem with the spiritual counseling of secularism. We don't even find him now because we can't see through Dr. Phil and all his advice to get the right answer. We've come through everything where we go everywhere first except the one book that God gave you that tells you everything about life you need to know. In chapter 7 we see how this problem really got going. There's two kinds of, there's two people in this story all through Matthew. I mean, Mark. One of them, the scribes and the Pharisees. The other one's the apostles. The scribes and the Pharisees represent for us all the modern-day religions that we're part of as Baptists. This little group of these little apostles represent the so-called fundamental crowd that's in there, where we 
place ourselves. Chapter 7 shows you the real problem. For it's in chapter 7 that Jesus begins to talk to the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's what their, here's what their big doctrinal kick is. Chapter 7 verse 1 through 5, you know what their big issue is? Well, your disciples didn't follow traditions of our Baptist fellowship. They ate with unwashed hands. You see, that's where, the, that's where Christianity is today. Who cares that washing hands wasn't part of the law? Who cares you couldn't find washing your hand before you eat as anything religious with a laser beam and a flashlight in the next 25,000 years you got to search through the Bible? Who cares about that? It's what we want to believe as Baptists. We always believed it this way. The fact that it's not in the Bible, it never came into the thing. Well, this is what it is. And they start judging the people of God by an unscriptural judgment that has nothing to do with anything in the Bible anywhere. Been around there? I have. You know what Jesus says? He says, you've laid, verse 8, he says, you've laid aside the word of God and now you're making up your own traditions. He says in verse 7, you worship in vain. You want to have fun sometime, just ask the average, the next Bible Christian, Baptist, you find for a Bible definition of worship. It's the funniest thing in the world. I don't watch cartoons anymore. Not because I don't like them. Daffy Duck is a favorite of mine. Wile E. Coyote, I can go the distance with him. I love it. But there's much more funny entertainment on, and that's turning preachers on TV on on Sunday morning. They make Daffy Duck lame. Wiley Coyote's out of gas compared to some of these boys and the gas they're putting out. I had a guy today, I was watching it this morning. When I, I don't usually do this in the morning when I'm getting the dogs ready, you know, getting everything cleaned up downstairs, and well, I'll just flip it on for a little while. And I heard today somebody say, thank you for being here today for our worship service. I heard another guy say, He's a little bit farther along in the service. He said, we're going to worship God today with our tithes and our offerings. And I thought to myself, well, there's two bozos right there that don't have a clue what the Bible says about worship. You think you're worshiping God here this morning? Well, if you are, you're in a backslidden condition. If you think you worship God when you come here and then you turn off the worship button and go out of here and do your own thing, let me tell you something. Worship, true worship, John chapter 4, true worship. Worship God in spirit and truth. It's a 24-7 thing in your life. When you're here this morning, you're not here to worship God. You're here to add the Word of God to what you've been worshiping all week long. It never stops. A worship service? What's that? Worship God with your tithes and your offerings? What's that? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit lives inside you. The truth is in a book. That's where your worship is. But I, you know what? They're probably right. Because most of them turn it on and turn it off whenever they need to. That's the problem. The scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' times are no different than the scribes and the Pharisees of our time. And I'll tell you something else. The apostles and their hardness of their heart and getting all confused and screwed up and losing the aspect of ministry is no different than you and I. And Jesus said, you know what, boys? I got some bad news for you. You're worshiping in vain. 
And I'm going to say to the body of Christ this morning, not necessarily you folks, but I'm telling you, the body of Christ this morning, you're in that little boat being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Your life is upside down. You won't know the first thing why you believe what you believe, and you've been saved for 35 years, and you're worshiping in vain. You've got something that is Christian and something that is spiritual, but it is neither biblical nor scriptural. And I'll just say this to you. You can put all the material in your Bible on Thursday nights you want to. You can walk around and show everybody how good a note taker you are. Some of you older Christians can walk around showing everybody how you already got it worked out. And you know what? If you don't live it, it's worthless. It's worthless. What good is, boy, look at this, Jimmy. Well, you don't have very many. Look at mine. Look at mine. Look at mine. Look at mine, boy. Then the first time something bad happened in my life, it's, oh, where is Jesus? Why are they persecuting me? I What good is it? What good is it? I'm waiting for an answer. What good is it? I'll wait here for an answer. What good is it? You're right. I'm telling you. You know what they did in chapter 6? They lost sight of the miracles of God. You know what happened in chapter 7? They lost sight of the Word of God. Now we're making it up. Who cares it's not in the Bible? It's what I like. It's what I feel. It's what I think. <coughs> chapter 8. Now, chapter 8 for me personally. So I'm just going to preach to myself in this chapter, and you can just get whatever you want out of it. But this is to me. This is the greatest story ever found anywhere in the Bible on me and my being a servant. Because in this chapter, we find another great feeding of a great multitude. There's 4,000 people here this time. Verse 9. And this is where he feeds them with the seven loaves and a few fishes. Now, the 12, they haven't learned a thing. Success has gone to their head, and they can't see it, like a lot of God's people. But, oh, they got their notes in their Bible. Oh, they got everything. Oh, they've walked with Jesus now. Oh, they've rubbed shoulders with him time after time. Oh, man, they've hung out with him. But you know what? Inside, their heart is his heart. You say, how do you know that? Well, let me just give you the story here, and let me quit preaching for a minute. You know what they've done? They've traded the power of God for a program. The subtitle of that is, The Day You and I Stop Growing. You see, when I get you saved and I start to work with you, or whatever you come in, wherever you're at, my job is to take you and help you grow. But there's a danger in that. There's a, everything in life is a balance. You know that. And there's a danger in even the good things of the Word of God because you become so satisfied, you get lazy, you get complacent, you get fat. And you get to the place where you just don't grow anymore. And then you just exist on your eroding glory. Look at verse 14 of Mark chapter 8. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. Well, somebody brought a loaf. I call that verse, leaving your Bible at home. 
You say, well, I got mine. I wasn't talking about you bringing it. I was talking about in here. The day you quit growing. You see, nobody thought to bring any bread. Why? Because they all had other agendas. And when you get to the point that you think you're something special, you quit getting in your Bible. You don't do the old things with the Word of God that keep you in line that you used to. You know why? Because you're who you are now. Oh. And that's exactly what they got. They'd all been hanging out with Jesus. They all did the great miracles. They all experienced His power. And now they traded that power. Life's a trade-off. They traded that power for a program. And here they go, out to do the ministry. And only one guy brought the Bible. One loaf of bread for 13, for 12. I'm going to tell you something. That's what a lot of God's people do. They just hitchhike off the guy whose spirituality that brings the bread. But they don't bring the bread anymore because they quit. They just go to church and they hear the sermon that Bob preaches or one of the other guys preaches and that's what they live off of. They buy the CDs and they go home and listen to them and that's what they live off of. But they don't bring any bread to themselves. They don't get into the Word of God on their own. They wouldn't know how to figure out a tough passage in the Bible if their life depended on it. They're too busy being blown from side to side in a boat by all the wind. Now, now here's what happened. And you kind of got to get all of the uh, gouts, well, gouts together to put this in. But, oh, it's, it's, it's worth the trip, man. First thing I told you about is how that they had lost sight of the miracles of God. <clears throat> Second thing I told you is they lost sight of the Word of God. And now they've lost God. Still saved. I mean, did you ever put this thing in a practical application? They're eating with him, walking with him, sleeping with him, talking with him 24 hours a day. The Lord Jesus, the God of glory, the King of heaven. They're fellowshipping with him like I'm looking at Jimmy and talking to Jimmy or Scott or Phil and, and having relate talks where they're talking all day long. I say to Jimmy, Jimmy, how's your day going? What do you think? What do you think about that? Could you imagine what it would be like to walk with the Lord and to say, Jesus, what do you think about this? Wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing in the world? I mean, could you walk, could you, would you mind walking from here to Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus if you, if you could just all the time there say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Boop, like a telephone pole. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Well, you know what? And it would be the greatest thing in the world. In the midst of all of that, they lost him. They lost him. They lost him. Watch this. Mark chapter 6 shows you the indifference of God's people when they lose the miracles of God, the Word of God, and they lose God, and yet they're still going. Oh, they're going to church. I'm not talking about people who don't come to church. I'm talking about people who are deacons, pastors, teachers, leaders. And boy, you get to the point where you just coast for a while. If you go over to Luke chapter 9, verse 40, which kind of further enhances our study because it's the same time, you'll find that right after the feeding of the 5,000, right after the event that tells you that they've got a hardness in their heart, you know what they come up against? And God does this. They come up against a man with a demonic spirit that they can't cast out. 
Remember reading that story? Well, the reason why is because they've lost the power of God. Because they've got it for, traded it for a program. Life is choices. And now they've come to a place where they, they, they had a wrong attitude of heart at the feeding of the 5,000, this great multitude. They want to send the people away because they don't care about people anymore. They're concerned about their status in the church. How men view me. Look at all my notes. Look how much I know. Well, I've been with Bob for, oh, I don't know, 100 years. Now they come up against a man who's demon-possessed and they can't cast out the demon. Why? They traded God's power for a program. So Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and while he's casting out the demon, what are they doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest among them. Nobody's concerned why we couldn't cast him out. While Jesus is doing, we got a little huddle over here, and we're deciding who's going to be the head deacon, who's going to be Bob's right-hand man, who's going to really be the greatest, you see. And then, Luke chapter 9, verse 49, they come back, and they see somebody else out there doing what they ought to be doing. And you know what? They don't like it. You know what Jesus does? He sends out 70 more just to tick them off. That's a great lesson. If you're ever a pastor, you get somebody that quits growing, and they get that baby attitude, just find out what they don't like and then do it just to tick them off. See how they respond to it. Now, can't give away all my secrets here this morning. In the midst of serving God, they have lost the servant attitude. They take no bread. They've quit growing. They get mad because somebody else is. And while the real ministry is going on and Jesus is doing it, they're arguing about which one's greater. That's us. That's us. Chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, much like it is in Matthew 17. Then right back to people. In verse 14, he deals with the deaf and dumb. In verse 33, he teaches his disciple to be humble. And while that's all going on, you find in verse 33, they break into another fight. Of who's greater? Who's going to get to do what? Well, you got to do this, and I didn't get invited to do that, so I'm mad. Wah, 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 wah. That's where it is. That's the way it is. That's the way God's people are when they stop growing. That's the way it is. I don't know what else to tell you. Yes, I do. Lose 25 pounds or gain 20 pounds in some cases, get you tan. All right, that brings us to the first half. And we're in trouble now because we're, oh, we're good. We don't have to be at the mission until 6.30, I forgot. In the first 10 chapters of Mark, Christ is my role model, servant presented. Lays out my attitude of ministry to be a servant to the people of God. And then shows you the dangers of what happens. It shows the scribes and the Pharisees as the quote unquote modern day Christianity. And all the things that they are about, which has nothing to do with God. 
and then shows how we get affected by that, that we trade the power of God in our lives for a program. That we start complaining. We start wanting to send the people away. We actually start thinking that we are something special and God just could not get along without us. You lose the attitude of a servant. You see, I don't care how good you do the ministry. And listen to me, you young people that are growing up to be leaders, I don't care how good you minister. It's your attitude of heart about how you minister that I look at. You don't have a servant's attitude. One of the reasons why I love this place when we got it, it had such wide doors for everybody to get out. Now in chapter 11 through chapter 16, you have the servant promoted. And this is where we see, as Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 took it all the way, where he's obedient under the cross and under his death. Mark chapter 11 through chapter 16 is one of the greatest places in the Bible that details out for you and me, the body of Christ, for anybody who's a Bible student, the last week of Christ's life before His crucified. It records the events from Palm Sunday up to His crucifixion and settles once and for all the aspect of the foolishness of this concept of Good Friday. The tragedy is, is most of God's people think Good Friday has something to do with something in the Bible. I'm telling you what, I, I don't know how to tell you. Sometimes I feel so, in, so inadequate. Sometimes I feel like I, I just don't have the ability to communicate to your heart how big a mess the body of Christ is in. I've never seen it in all my life. I have never seen it in all my life. What would you think if I told you that there are some of God's people who probably you know who are saved and on their way to heaven, who worship demonic spirits. Would you, have be, would you be shocked at that? What would you do if I told you that, that there were some of God's people, who you probably know, who get, their, who get their direction straight out of the pit of hell? Would that shock you? And yet we hear things like that and we think, oh, Bob, where are you coming from? I just don't know how you can, I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can come to that conclusion. Yeah, I know. You know why? Because you're in that little boat and you're just getting kicked six ways from Sunday. And the best of the thing is, brother, you know what? You couldn't, you couldn't define where you're at and why you were a Baptist if your life depended on it. I mean, you're just, you are who you are because you're who you are. You don't know why. If I had, if I asked you who started the first Baptist church in America, when and where and what Bible stock he was from, you'd look at me like I was a tree full of owls. So I'm telling you, lose 20 pounds, gain 20 pounds, get you a tan. Best I can give you. Sorry. You don't want the Bible? Best I can give you. I preached this message, something like this one time, and I told him, I said, I told the people, you know, when I started, I said, I'm loosening my tie, and they all laughed like you did, because I knew the people, you know. After I was done the preaching, the boy came up and said, boy, preacher, you should have took your whole shirt off. <laughs> God's people have no clue of why they believe what they believe. I'm ashamed for some of God's people. I really am. And again, I'm telling you, if you're somebody that just got saved or you're just plugging in, that's, that's one thing. But I watch, man, I watch, I, watch, I watch all the things that go on. I watch all the things that the churches do. 
I'm telling you, I'm firmly convinced the only thing that's going to stop the body of Christ from lining up with the Antichrist is the rapture of the church. I believe with all my heart. I believe with all my heart. Now, it's important for you to understand these chapter 11 to chapter 16 as a Bible believer because you get bombarded with everything. And it's in these chapters where, yes, he talks about being obedient to the cross. But in Mark chapter 11 to chapter 16, we also find him dealing with the last week from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday and completely puts to rest the demonic teaching of Good Friday. Now, Good Friday, let me just start with this. Good Friday originates with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, in, in Greek and Roman paganism, you have a demonic female goddess of fertility and love. And her name is Freya, sometimes pronounced Freya. But believing in Freya will certainly Freya, if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> and she is the Greek Roman, go Greek goddess of fertility and love, a female deity. Our day, Friday, is named after her. Now don't let that upset you. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are all pagan gods that come out of the Greek and Roman Empire. And then Sunday, today, is the day that they worship the sun. So it's the Sunday. In other words, you gave all their gods their days, and then on the, this day was the Sunday. See? So you know that. Now she being the goddess of fertility and being fertile, she represents the fish because fish lay millions of eggs. So in the pagan teachings, her sign is the sign of a fish. You see it sometimes, you know? That's her sign. And of course, she has a counterpart. You know, Venus is her counterpart in another religious culture. And then you have Ashtar from the Roman castellar, which is our word for Easter. Easter. And uh, truth of the matter is, you don't find you find this stuff in the Laodicean church. You didn't find it in the Philadelphian church. You never found the Waldensians or Albigensians or the Huguenots or the Paulicians or the Bogomiles or whoever. You never found them messing with this stuff for five minutes. No, no. You got to get culture and educated and stupid like we are to get this in. Now the the rabbit is picked because he's also or fertile. She she's fertile, and. You know, the rabbit and the Easter eggs and all that stuff all goes together. And you find it all put together in Acts 19.35 with Diana. You know, there's all kinds of composites down through this thing. Now, here's what you got. You say, thanks for the history lesson, Bob, but what's this got to do with me? Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Other than someday you're going to stand next to a Waldensian Albadendans that gave his life for what he believed, and you're going to have to look him in the eye, not to mention the Lord. And you're going to say... Judgment seat of Christ, five more for me. And that wall then going to look up and smile and say, yeah, I'm sure glad you're you and I'm me. Okay, here's how it goes, boys and girls. Basic lesson. We'll call this class Stupidity 101. Because anybody can get it. Around 313 through 325, the last pagan emperor's name is Constantine. Constantine's a phony. Constantine starts the Roman Catholic Church. It's every hell and damnable heresy that comes into the body of Christ starts with, starts with Constantine. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, this period of time is called the church period of the Pergamos. Pergamos means much marriage. It's a time when the church gets married to the world. 
And what happens is that old Constantine, he pulls together where he wants to consolidate his political kingdom, so he turns religious and he puts it all together. And what he does, he brings all the pagans into the church. And when all the pagans come into the church, he allows them to bring all their godly st ungodly stuff and everything that comes in with it. And uh, you begin to find that that's when this brand of Christianity, if that's what you want to call it, begins to reverence Easter. This is where you begin to find the concept of, of Good Friday. You see, Freya, Freya, was the fish goddess. So when the Roman Catholic Church gets up and running to worship her on her day, they don't eat meat. They eat what? Fish. Did you ever see the Pope's hat when he was laying there stinking in the sun over there on the television screen? His hat that looks like a mitre. That's, you know why they get that? That's called, that's it, because it's shaped like a fish. That comes out of Judges chapter 5 with Dagon, half man, half fish. You say, Bob, I just, oh, where are you getting all this at? Where are you getting, I don't, know, I don't know about this, I don't know about this. Yeah, I know, it's a conspiracy. They hide all this stuff in books. <laughs> that you could go to any public library and get in 20 minutes. But oh no, we're not going to do that. Well, when all this thing comes together, all this stuff pulls together, we find that Friday becomes the day of the Roman Catholic uh, deal with the fish and all the things going with it. So when it comes down to the crucifixion, they make Christ being crucified on Friday. Because I don't care, the Roman Catholic Church, like it or not, has always put above everything else female deities. That's why when you go to a Roman Catholic Church, every picture of Christ, every statue of Christ, Mary will always be higher than He is. That's why when you go to a Roman Catholic Church right behind the altar, there's a great big sunburst. Because in Judges chapter 18, Judges chapter 17, and a hundred other places, they worship the sun god on Sunday when the sun was right overhead. Elijah had an encounter with those boys back there in the book of Judges. You had to study it sometime. Marvelous. 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 And overnight, we came from the pagan emperor, became the pope. The gods became saints. The pagan temples became churches. The temple prostitutes became nuns. The black-robed priest out of Baal worship became black-robed priest of the Roman Catholic Church. And with all the worldly stuff and the devil worship stuff coming in, Christianity now that would meet the masses had everything it needed. Did you come in and believe whatever you want to believe and bring all your junk in, Christmas trees, Easter eggs, Easter bunnies, little fish symbols, little crosses, this, all that. You'll never, and I don't care. You know what? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But you know what? You'll never find any Waldenian Albertan anywhere in anywhere in the body of Christ ever wore a crucifix around their neck. Never. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the cross was a curse. Cursed is he that hangeth on a cross. Barbara and I were going someplace Friday night, driving down 350 Highway. Remember that dude? There along the road was this guy carrying this big cross on his shoulder. I mean, the cross looked like it was 20 feet long. And he's walking down the side of the road like this. And people are honking the horn. And he's walking down like this. And everybody's honking the horn because they say, well, there's a man that is giving us the example of building, uh, of bearing your cross for Jesus. You know what I saw? I saw that's exactly the way Christians do it. He had wheels on the end of his cross. <laughs> I told you. When I was nine, my mother gave me the Vulcan mind melt. I've never been the same since. I see things totally different from everybody else. I mean, everybody else is honking their horn. I tried to hit the sucker. I just saw him too late. 
when I'm looking in the rearview mirror, here he is down there, you know, everybody's all, he's waving, you know, strong thing for Jesus, strong thing for Jesus. And I'm thinking to my, everybody's saying, oh, way to go brother, praise Jesus, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking to myself, yep, that's exactly the way modern 20th century Laodicean Christians do it. Put wheels on the cross so you don't have to bear the burden the wheels do it. Oh boy. You really want to bear the cross? Drag it on the ground like he did. I know, I know. I'm weird. I know. But you know what? I don't care until hell freezes over. I'll stick with the book. I'll stick with the book. And I know the way God's people think. I know the way they think. And I'm telling you again. I'm telling you. Brother, if it wouldn't be for the rapture of the church, the body of Christ would buy into the Antichrist in 10 seconds. You know why? Because they don't know who the devil and God is anymore. I mean, we got the whole body of Christ took the devil's Bible in 1900. We got God's people wearing the little devil demonic pins uh, on their lapels. And, and, and they come to the place where they, they, they got the devil's music. And then we got Baptist churches when the greatest type of the Antichrist and the church that he's going to come from dies in Rome. Baptist Bible-believing churches lower their flags at half-mast to salute the Antichrist. <laughs> hey, Jared. Where's Jared? Stand up. Stand up, stand up Jared. Stand up. Stand, stand up. Jared is one of the greatest tile men that you'll ever find in your life. Sit down, Jared. I, if you ever go to his house, look in his bathroom, his tile. He's got great monograms. He can do anything, can't you? I want, to, I want to be your manager. We're going to get Christians and we're going to put satanic pentagrams in their showers. We'll sell a million of them. We'll tell you. It's got four points. North, south, east, and west. Jesus is the very best. They'll buy it just like that. You see? You know what the real tragedy is? You're laughing and I'm laughing and it's funny. But God's people don't know the difference. They think one is bad and one is good. They don't have a clue. You liked that, didn't you, Scott? Bring me a couple of them little chicken things next week, okay, if you love your preacher. No, I'm telling you. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed. I, I'm, I'm blown away. So now I'm going to show you how there's no good Friday, but it's bad Wednesday. Because I'm going to walk you through this thing. Here we go, the last week. You know what? It starts out day by day, and then it goes hour by hour, and when you get down to the last chapters, it goes minute by minute. You couldn't miss a thing. All right, now you're going to have to just kind of put your notes down and don't take this note and just walk with me here so you can see this. And I'll, I'll go over this with anybody one-on-one -on -one you want to go over with. I really will. All right, let's go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1. From chapter 11, verse 1 to verse 11, you have Sunday, or what we commonly call Palm Sunday, one week before he's crucified. He goes into Jerusalem on the wild ass of a colt, which is an interesting study in itself. This is where they lay the palm leaves down, and he goes into Jerusalem. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says at eventide, that's 6 o'clock in the evening, he stays in Bethany. So now chapter 11, 1 through 11, gives us all Sunday. All that Sunday, which is commonly called Palm Sunday, and it winds up in verse 11 at 6 o'clock in the evening in Bethany. Now, I need to tell you this so you keep it straight. Remember, the key here is how the Jews take their day. Our day as Gentiles start, you know, differently than theirs. Theirs starts from 6 o'clock in the evening to 6 o'clock the next night. You've got to remember that. Now, the Jewish day is from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. So now we've come to the first day. He's in Bethany at 6 p.m., which is Sunday. All right? 
Look at chapter 11, verse 12. There's a paragraph mark there. And up to 12 through 19, you have Monday. And up there he says, Monday morning in verse 12. On the morrow, that's Monday. This is where he curses the fig tree, verse 13. This is where in verse 17 he goes in and he says, uh, uh, my house, uh, you know, made a den of thieves. And that's an interesting study. He goes into the temple two times. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of the ministry. First time he goes in, he says, my father's house. Second time he goes in three years later, he says, my house. And oh, is there a study in that? But <clears throat> not today. So we see there from the verse 12 to 19, we have Monday morning. <clears throat> Come on down to verse 19, and there's what it says, Monday night at even, 6 p.m., verse 19. Now, chapter 11, verse 20, <clears throat> at the paragraph mark, Tuesday morning. And this is going to be the longest day recorded in our week because from chapter 11, verse 20, where it says on the morrow or Tuesday morning, all the way over to chapter 14, verse 17 is all the same day, Tuesday. And when you come over in chapter 14, verse 17, which is Tuesday night at even, that's 6 p.m. Tuesday night. All right. Chapter 14, verse 18 begins Wednesday, the day of the Passover. And chapter 14 through uh, 18 carries us through the, that night and the next day when Christ is crucified. This is Wednesday, not Friday. This is Wednesday. 6 p.m. started Wednesday. Verse, 28, verse 18 through 25, you have the Last Supper, sometimes after 6. Verse 26, they go to the Mount of Olives after that. Verse 32 through 42, his agony in the garden. In verse 43, uh, uh, 17, uh, Judas uh, betrays him. Uh, verses uh, 43, uh, 43 Jesus, Judas betrays him. And then in verse 50 uh, through 53, everybody forsakes him, the 12. And in verse 67 through 72, Peter denies him. And then it comes to chapter 15, verse 1. Look what it says. In the morning. <clears throat> now this is Wednesday morning at 6 o'clock. We've had half the day, which started at 6 o'clock the night before. And now we're going to get the last half of the day. And this is the day that he's crucified. Wednesday morning at 6 o'clock, verse 1 and 2. Before Pilate. Verse 15, he goes, the issue with Barabbas. Verse 17, the robe and the crown of thorns. Verse 21, on his way to the cross. This is where Simon the Cyrenian carries the cross for him. Verse 25, he's crucified, the Bible says, the third hour. That's 9 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday. Verse 33, 6th to the 9th hour. That's 12 noon to 3 p.m. That's when God turns his back on his son. That's that terrible three hours where he pays the price for you and for me in hell. Sixth to the ninth hour, verse 34 through verse 37, he dies Wednesday afternoon, sometime around or shortly after the ninth hour, three o'clock. <clears throat> verse 42, even six o'clock, the end of the day. Sometime after that, he's taken down off the cross by Joseph of Arimathea. He's put in the tomb. Now, this brings us up to his Wednesday at six o'clock, the 14th day of the month, which is exactly what it tells you it's going to be in Exodus chapter 12 with a sacrificial lamb. But we ain't got time to get into that. Okay, he's dead now. He's off the cross. He's taken down off the cross Wednesday around 6 o'clock in the evening. Now, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, that he's got to be in Abraham's bosom three days. Let's count them. We're at Wednesday. All right, Wednesday from 6 o'clock to Thursday 6 o'clock is one day. Thursday, 6 o'clock, the Friday, 6 o'clock is two days. 
Friday at 6 o'clock. The Saturday, 6 o'clock is the third day. He comes out of the tomb Saturday night after 6 o'clock even, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, and he appears to everybody Sunday morning around 6 o'clock. Every day, every hour, every minute is accounted for, and there is no Good Friday, just like there is no Star of David, just like there is no Fish God, just like there is no nothing that God's people believe in, because they, one, they have lost the miracles. Two, they have lost the truth, and three, they don't know where God is if they had to find Him for the life. They can't. And that's where you're at. Chapter 16, you get the Great Commission given to the apostles for the nation of Israel, and it talks about their signs and wonders. Oh, by the way, your NIV, your greatest, most reliable Bible, if you go down in the footnote there around uh, verse chapter 9 of the last chapter of Mark, they'll tell you the last 12 verses really shouldn't be in your Bible. So, for all of you that are NIV lovers, we have zip go cutters that when you pick one up on your way out today and just rip that verse right out, those verses right out of your Bible. Because scholarship says God didn't know what he was talking about when he put them in. You'll never go wrong sticking with a book. Anybody who tells you different is a crook. I'm making that into a rap song. You never go wrong sticking with the book. If anybody tells you that, they're a crook. I can do it. All right, here's what you got. Chapter 1 through chapter 10. The servant presented. Work in life, obedient in ministry, obedient in service. Chapter 11 through chapter 16. Servant promoted. Work in death, obedient in death, obedient to the sacrifice. And of course, my role model is a servant most important thing in this whole book is to see, you know what? I'm telling you something. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how educated you get with that Bible. It doesn't matter how godly you think you are. God's people quit growing. I want to get growing. They're just like the apostles. And they fall right into that trap where instead of being servants to other people, you that are strong ought to bear infirmity of the weak. You begin to getting your node bent at a joint because you don't get your glory. And that's the body of Christ. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. This book will keep you straight because this body of Christ, I'm going to say it for the last time today, firmly convinced in my mind, the only thing to keep the body of Christ, they got the devil's Bible, they got the devil's trinkets, they got the devil's concept of the crucifixion. They don't, they don't have a clue and the only thing that's going to keep the body of Christ, I guess that's why Revelation chapter 4, 3 talks about the fact that it's the only church that doesn't have a representative angel before the throne of God. Because I'm telling you what, if it wouldn't be for the rapture church, the great Baptist churches in this city, along with all the other mess of churches in this city, would just line right up behind him and just say, boy, he's here, isn't it great? And I'm telling you something, stick with the book. Stick with the book. Some of you don't like me for what I said today. Some of you may be angered. But you know what? I'm going to tell you what. I really don't care. I'd rather have you be upset with me and tell you the truth. But at the judgment seat of Christ, just look over my way. I'll give you one of these. And my advice to you is lose 20, pick up 20, get you some tanning beds. Because it's coming. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Now I'm going to be through here in a moment.